Good morning. It's great to see everybody today. I'm, uh, I'm glad to be with you and excited about uh, giving this message. Like Bevan said, we're continuing our series, God Is. And the reason that we're going through this series is because there are a lot of ideas out there about God. And once you kind of start to unpack them and get beyond just the term God, but what do we actually believe about God, it becomes apparent that all these ideas about God are not the same, and in fact, they're very different and many times very contradictory of one another. And so last week, we began the series, and we started off by kind of taking a big picture um, view of God as he presents himself in the Bible. And what we learned is that God is triune. And that's not a word that we use all the time, but the word triune, it means three in oneness. And it, it conveys this really important reality about God that he is three persons. Each of the three persons is fully God, but there's still, there's still only one God. So when, when God comes, he presents himself and he says, I am Father, I'm Son, I'm Holy Spirit. And he's not just saying, here's three different names, but he's saying each name represents a different person. And it's worth noting, because we, we talked about this last week, but that this, this idea, this is kind of difficult for us to get our heads around. I mean, three persons, but it makes up one God, and there's not three gods, there's only one God. But the, the, kind of the reality is, is, I mean, part of it is, what did we think we would find when we discovered who God is? I mean, did, did we think we would find someone that we could fully get our heads around? I mean, we're, we're talking about someone far greater, far more complex, a being that's far larger than we are. And so did we really think that we would be able to just simplify him and kind of encapsulate him in this perfect little description? And so what we find is we find that who God is he, is, he is, he is like us in many ways, but in some ways he is unlike us. And this isn't just some weird idea. I mean, we talk about God being triune and we, we use the word Trinity, but this isn't just some weird idea we just kind of have to accept. And it's one of those things where, oh, okay, if I'm a Christian, I just kind of have to get past this idea of God, put it on the top shelf, and leave it alone. No, actually, this, this explains a lot of who we are and also the world around us. And we, we dove into that last week and looked at how this triune God we find in the Bible actually makes sense of much of what we experience and also what we see in the world. So this isn't just some weird idea. And once we understand who God is, what you find is the God of the Bible, this triune God, he is completely unlike any other God ideas out there. He's not even close to some of these other God ideas. He is very unique and very distinct. And if we want to get to know God, what's important is once we kind of get this big picture, to begin with each one of the three persons. So again, he comes and he says, I'm Father, I'm Son, I'm Holy Spirit. So to take those persons one at a time, take the person of the Father, the person of the Son, the person of the Holy Spirit, and then unpack those ideas. And as we do that, we really get to know who God is and how he interacts in our lives. And so we're going to begin this morning kind of moving from just the big picture and kind of taking these kind of zoomed in approaches. And we're going to start by talking about God the Father. And we're going to look at who he is and what it means for God to be our Father. January 5th, 2015, that's an important date in my life, uh, that is the day that my daughter Olivia was born. And on that day, um, she entered into the world, and um, after hours of labor and being there, you know, when you're, when, when you're a first-time dad, you think when we get to the hospital, I've got to stay awake the whole time. The second time around, I slept a little bit in the hospital, which 
But, you know, my wife, you know, she was okay with it. I did actually, we talked about it. But the first time, I was awake for everything. So I, I don't even know. I mean, it was like 30 plus hours of being awake. We go through labor, everything. Finally, she's born. They hand her to me. I'm sitting there in the room. I have no idea how to hold her. I'm holding her, you know, and I'm sitting there, and I just, I'm overcome with emotion. And as I'm sitting there holding my daughter, I started to cry. And just thinking about the weight of responsibility and the love that I have for this new life and just the opportunities that this indicated. And as I'm sitting there, the nurse turns, and she's like, oh, we have to take a picture of this. So she's like, she like gets a camera, and I'm like, sure, great. I'm sitting in the corner crying, you know, like, take a picture of me. So we end up with this picture. Then September 21st, 2016, a very another, another very important day. That, uh, that's the day that my son Cohen was born. And that's the day that I went from being the father of one, just the father of a little girl, to now I'm the father of two. I have a boy and a girl. And at the time, I was like, when I had this little girl, I was like, I couldn't imagine. I was like, I, was like, I love her so much. I can't even imagine having another kid. What, what's going to happen? Like, am I going to have to divide my love? I didn't know that it was going to exponentially increase when you have more kids. I didn't know that your love just continues to grow as you have more. And so then Cohen enters the world, and I realized that, and it just, it's, it's the most exciting and amazing thing to have these two little kids in my life. And what's significant about these pictures is these pictures of these two little kids, they tell you something important about me. Because I'm a father, that that is a defining part of who I am. And so it's when you see my kids and you see me interact with my kids, you see our relationship, the, the way that we relate to one another, the way we communicate, the way we play, you start to learn who I am. I mean, you can know a lot about me. You can know a lot of facts about me. You can know that I'm I'm a pastor. You can know I get up on stage and I speak, but it, 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 you don't really know me until you start to see me in the context of my relationship with my kids. It's actually the same when it comes to our Father, God the Father. It's not until we start to see his interaction with Jesus that we start to learn, really, what does it mean for God to be Father? And in the first kind of two-thirds of the Bible, the, the Old Testament, we, we get a picture of God. And he presents himself, and he explains a lot of who he is. And, and we get this very big picture, but then it, it kind of comes into focus when Jesus shows up on the scene, and then we see the interaction between their relationship, between the Father and the Son, and we really learn what it means for God to be our Father. And there's a theme that comes about in their relationship, and it's significant, it's worth noting. And the theme of their relationship revolves around the will of the Father, And so there's one situation where Jesus is in a house and he's doing some teaching and his his physical family shows up at the door and they're trying to get his attention. And the people in the house are like, hey, your family's outside. And then Jesus takes that as an opportunity to teach something. And he says, you know, my family is actually those who do the will of the Father. And then there's another situation where Jesus is doing some teaching and he takes it as an opportunity to kind of address this question, how do you enter the kingdom of heaven? Because there was these ideas about, okay, if, what do we have to do to be kind of a part of God's family and enter the kingdom of heaven? And what Jesus says is, he says, it's not by calling me Lord, Lord. And another way of saying that is, it's not when you just verbalize that I'm your God. But you are a part of the kingdom of heaven when you do the will of the Father who sent me. So again, you see this idea of God the Father's will just continuing to work itself in. Even, even I mean, think about the prayer that we refer to as the Lord's Prayer where Jesus says, this is how you should pray. What does it start with? It starts with our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your 
will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So again, Jesus is saying when you pray, you're actually praying for the Father's will to happen. And then Jesus exemplifies this in his own life. Right before he goes to the cross and takes on the sins of the world, right before he does that, he's in the garden and he's wrestling with this idea. And what does he say? He says, not my will, but your will be done. So over and over in their relationship, you see this idea of the Father's will coming up over and over. And their whole relationship revolves around this idea. And that leads us to ask a question, well, well, why does God have a will? Well, it's the same reason I have a will for my kids. The reason I have a will for my kids, the reason that I enact it and, and bring it to play in their life is because I love them and I want what's best for them. I, I care about my kids deeply. They're, they're incredibly significant for me, and I want what's best for them. I want them to experience good in this life. I have a will for them, and so I weave my will into their lives. One of the things that um, we did this year is we got a beach pass to the state beach, and um, so we've been kind of, you know, trying out the different beaches. If you want tips on, like, which ones are kids-friendly or not, I maybe she could start, like, a blog on that, but on our off day, we go and we'll hang out at the beach, and um, when we go to the beach, I don't just take my lawn chair and a book, you know, and sit in the chair and kick my feet up and just relax. No, I have an 11-month-old and a two-and-a-half-year-old. What do you think I do at the beach? I'm watching them. I'm paying attention to them. I'm, I've, I see them pick something up, and I'll swoop in and be like, no, 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 you don't want to do that. You don't want to eat that. You don't want to put that in your mouth. Actually, we were at Crystal Cove recently, and uh, we, got, we took a family photo, and we got home, and um, we, were, we thought we were doing so good at the beach, you know, protecting our kids. And then we got home, and we saw this photo, and it turns out my daughter is eating seaweed in the photo. And we were like, no, like, major parent fail. Like, we were there to prevent this from happening. And what's funny about that is my daughter's, she's really not the one we worry about when it comes to putting stuff in her mouth. It's my son. He's the one we worry about. I mean, the first time we went to the beach, I don't even think he touched the sand with his hands. He just like went head first into it to see if it tasted good. Seashells, I'll admit, he ate a seashell one time. You know, we didn't catch that one in time. Feathers, bird feathers, I don't want him to eat those. So when we're at the beach, see, I, it's, it's, a, it's a fun place. It's a place I want to take my family. I want my kids to experience that. But they're not aware of all the dangers at the beach. And so I, as a father, I have a will. I'm watching them. I'm paying attention to them. And then I'm inter- interacting with them and enacting my will into their lives to, to protect them and bring some things about and help them avoid other things. Same thing that God the Father does for us. See, the, the Father has a will for us. And he's weaving his will into our lives because he wants what's best for us. He wants good for us. He loves us, so he has a will for us. And that starts with the fact that he is, he's watching us. And we get a good picture of what it means for him to be watching over us in John chapter 4. John chapter 4, you might be familiar with this passage. It's a passage referred to as Jesus and the woman at the well. And in this scene that you read about. I'm not, I'm not going to go through the whole thing. I'll kind of let you read it. It's probably about 35 verses. But in this passage, what you, what you see is, is you really see the Father's will and what it means for him to watch over us. And the story begins, and there's a little bit of backstory that we're given. And then Jesus and his disciples, they're, they're making this journey. They're moving from one region to the next. And as they're traveling, Jesus is tired. So he sits down at this well to take a rest. It's about noon, it says, middle of the day. So Jesus sits down to take a rest, and the rest of the disciples, they head into the village to get some food. So they leave Jesus there. He's worn out. 
And then while they're all gone in the village getting some food, this woman, this Samaritan woman, walks up, and she's bringing her pail of water to draw some water. And when she comes up, Jesus engages her in a conversation. And they talk about many things. But as you go through this conversation, it's interesting. At some points, it feels abrupt. It feels kind of like, wait, why would he say that? Why would he bring that up? But they have this conversation. And then the conversation kind of winds down. The disciples return from the village. They've got the food. And then once they return, the, the woman gets up and she leaves. And then Jesus then has this conversation with his disciples. This is what it says in John 4, verse 31. It starts with this. It says, Meanwhile, his disciples urged him. So they've come back. The woman's left. The disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. So they've gone. They've gotten food. They've brought it back. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. So this is interesting. They left him, and he was tired and worn out and famished. So you would think, okay, we brought you food. We've brought you energy, you know, to energize you. And then Jesus says, you know, I have food that you know nothing about. So then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? So they're sitting there wondering, okay, wait a second. We left you in this state. We return. You're fully energized. You're excited. You're, you're upbeat. I mean, it makes no sense. You didn't eat anything. What's going on? And then this is what Jesus says. He says, my food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And this is fascinating. What, what Jesus is doing is he's saying, you want to know what I really live for? You want to know what energizes me and fills me? It's doing the will of my Father. And you left me, and I was worn out, and I was tired, but now I'm, I'm energized. I'm ready to go. And the reason is because Jesus had just been doing the will of the Father. That's what had energized him. So then for us, when we read something like that, it's wise for us to say, okay, well, what was it that Jesus did that was the will of the Father? And as we read through this story, we see God's will for this woman, and we see Jesus living it out in this woman's life, in this conversation. And in that, we learn how God, our Father, watches over us. And so that's what we're going to look at. The Father watches us, first of all, personally. That's the first thing that we realize when we read through this. The Father watches us personally. Now, according to Jesus... Again, this moment with the woman at the well, it's a glimpse of the father enacting his will in her life. And one of the ways that we see the father enacting his will is in some of the details that we're given. We're, we're given a lot of details in this story. And some of them are, are rather interesting, but they point to the fact that the father has been orchestrating events to bring about this conversation. I mean, just think about these details. Jesus is... He, he's not from this region. He doesn't hang out here. He's traveling from one location to the next, so it's just, he's just kind of stopping along the way. So he's not going to be here for a long time. He stops in the middle of the day. He's tired. In the middle of the day, people didn't draw water. They did that in the morning. They would go out, and they would get, it, get their water to start the day at the beginning of the day, but they wouldn't do it throughout the day. So it's odd for this woman to be coming at that time that Jesus has just happened to stop there. And then this, to me, is really interesting. So it's Jesus and his 12 disciples. How many disciples go into the village to get food? All 12 of them. I mean, how many guys does it take to make some food decisions? You know what I mean? And so Jesus is the only one there. All 12 have left. But that's really significant culturally. Because if the rest of the guys were there, this conversation probably would have never taken place. 
So the fact that it's just Jesus and it's just this woman, some of those cultural norms that they had that might have prevented this are suddenly removed, so now they can have this conversation. So you can see how the Father is orchestrating events, weaving his will to bring about this conversation. And then in the conversation, as Jesus talks with her, Jesus does something that, as you read it, it, it feels abrupt. It feels kind of like, wait, why would, why would he bring that up? And what he does is he, he brings up the woman's husband. He says, go get your husband. And turns out she doesn't have a husband currently. She's living with somebody that she's not married to, but she's actually had five husbands. She's been married five times. And to us, we're sitting there wondering, what's the significance of this? But to this woman, it was really obvious what the significance was. And actually, later on in the story, we're told what the significance is. This is what it says in verse 28. It says this. It says, then leaving her water jar, so the disciples have returned, then she leaves her water jar. The woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. How did Jesus know everything she had ever done? Well, the father knew everything she had ever done. And the reason the father knew everything she had ever done is the father was watching her. It's the same reason I know more about my kids than you know about my kids. It's because I'm watching my kids. I'm paying attention to them. I mean, God the Father watches us better than I watched my daughter at Crystal Cove when she ate seaweed, but he's watching us closely. He knows every detail of what's going on. He watches us personally. And just think about the implication of that. This story with this woman, this, this isn't some anomaly. It just happened one time, and it just happened with her. No, this is painting a picture of how God watches us. I mean, just think about that. He is aware of everything that we've ever done. He's seen it all from the perspective of a father. And he's been weaving his will, orchestrating events to bring us to points of decision. I mean, think about that. That's amazing. That's what the Bible teaches. We have a father. He loves us. He cares for us. He wants what's best for us. He knows and watches us personally. He's been weaving his will into our lives. And the reason that the father did this is because he had a plan for this woman, a very specific plan. Same plan he has for me, same plan he has for you. He, he has a plan for all of us with our individual names written on it. That's amazing. He's not just gathering data, but he's watching us, paying attention to us, orchestrating events, because he's got a plan for each one of our lives. And that's the next thing that we learn what that plan is. This is what it says. It says, or this is the point. The point is the Father watches for worship. That's the Father's plan for our lives. He watches for worship. Now, what we just did a few minutes ago when the band was up here and we sang, we refer to that as worship. You know, we get together, we have some instruments, we sing some songs, and that is a part of what the word worship means. But the word worship actually has a much broader meaning than that. The word means to revere or to raise something above ourselves. See, when we worship something, what we do is we, we organize our lives around it. That's what we do. It, it really, if you think about it, with, with our lives, we're really worshiping stuff. Whether that's God or whether that's a career or whether that's a relationship, we revolve ourselves around something, and with our lives, we're really worshiping it because we're putting it at the center. So with our thoughts, with our resources, with our energy, with our time, we're saying, okay, this is what's most important to me. This is what I'm going to be devoted to. This is something that I'm going to worship. And what God the Father knows 
is he knows that the only thing that we can organize our lives around so that life will really work, the way this whole thing is set up, the way it's designed to work, is when we organize our lives around him. And this last week, Monday, I know many people went outside and saw, I think we saw, what, 60% of the, you know, 60% eclipse from down here. And I know millions of people across the U.S. lined up and watched it. And I'll admit, I was out there, I know I broke the rules, but I had eight sunglasses stacked on top of each other, and I was watching the eclipse. And I actually got to see it. And my eyes, like, I don't think there's any issues, I still see fine. I know I broke the rules, but millions of people lined up. And when people did that, they lined up all across the United States to watch that. There was this sense of awe and amazement. This, this sense, not just of like, well, that's interesting science, but like, there's, what's the meaning of this? There's, is there significance? It was almost like, it almost like moved something emotionally. And the reality is, is God has set up this universe to work where our planet Earth needs something as large as the sun to orbit around in order for life on this planet to be sustained and to thrive. And that's one of the things that the eclipse points to, is the fact that God created this place with, with order, and there's a process to it, and we can predict stuff like that. But the reason that there was such a deep sense of awe and amazement is because deep down, we all have this sense that we need something outside of ourselves to attach our lives to for meaning and significance and purpose. And the Father... He's watching for worship because he's fully aware that we're going to attach our lives to something. And he knows the only thing big enough for us to attach our lives to is him. Just like the earth needs the sun, without the sun, life falls apart. It's same with God. He knows that in order for life to work and not fall apart, we need him and we need to revolve our lives around him. This is one of the points that Jesus makes to this woman in the conversation. Jesus tells her that this is the Father's will. After he brings up her five husbands, you could imagine, there's, she's feeling a little uncomfortable because he's just kind of communicated, hey, I, I know everything. I even know about this. So there's maybe a little bit of awkward tension in the conversation. And so she gets the subject off her. Hey, I don't want to talk about my relationship status. Let's talk about something else. So she brings up kind of like this common debate of the time. Where is the temple supposed to be? Is it supposed to be in Jerusalem or is it supposed to be here? Where should we put the temple? Really, it was a debate over what's the right location to worship God. That was really what the debate boiled down to. So she brings up this debate, and this is what Jesus says in verse 23. He says, yet a time is coming and has now come, so this time is already here, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. The point Jesus is making is, is God isn't looking for people who say, oh, I'm going to worship God, so I need to run to this location because this is the only location I worship God. That's not what the Father is concerned with. The Father is seeking true worshipers, worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth, worshipers who they're not forced to do it. They're not doing it because maybe they can manipulate the Father to get something from him. They're not doing it because they've been lied to, but he's looking for true worshipers who worship him with their whole lives simply because they want to. They've decided, this is based on my free choice. This is what I want to do. I want to organize my life around him. That's what the father is watching for. He's looking for and paying attention to that kind of worship, and every plan he enacts in our lives is moving us towards this end. 
where we have to make a choice, what are we going to worship? And because of that, that means that there's a little bit of a problem. Because we, you know, we might say, ah, yeah, Jesus is in God first place. I'm putting the Father first. But then when we live our lives, we're really putting other stuff first. There's other stuff that we think is going to make us happy. There's other stuff that we organize our lives around. Recently, I, uh, I got a foam roller from Amazon. It costs like, you know, $10. One of my friends was like, hey, you know, I was telling him about some, you know, pain I was having in, like, my back, and he was like, oh, you got to get a foam roller. It'll change your life, you know. So I get this foam roller, and I, you know, didn't know how much I trusted him, so I got the cheapest one I could find on Amazon, less than 10 bucks. So I get this foam roller, and it comes in the mail. It's in this big box. I bring it in the apartment, and my little two-and-a-half-year-old Olivia, she sees it, and she's like, oh, Daddy, what's in the box? So I'm like, I'm like, you know, I open it up, and I knew what it was. I open it up, and I'm like, Olivia, it's a foam roller. And she's just like, oh, it's my favorite. And she grabs the foam roller, and she introduces it to all of her babies. And she, I mean, seriously, like, not, I'm not even joking you. This last week, she told somebody that that foam roller is her favorite. She just loves that foam roller. And actually, later that evening, when we first got it, I was like, okay, let's put this thing to good use and see if it's all it's supposed to be. So I started rolling on that foam roller. She's just dying, just like, no, my foam roller, my foam roller. She thought I was going to break the foam roller. It's her favorite. She loves it. It's what, it's what makes her happy. And we, we do the same thing. In a lot of ways, we're just like my little girl. There's stuff in life, and we, we see it, and we think, ah, that's my favorite. That's what's going to make me happy. So maybe, maybe it's a career, and maybe it's chasing money, and it's, this is going to make me happy. This is my favorite. So we organize our lives around that. Or maybe it's a hobby. Oh, this, this hobby, this makes me happy. This is my favorite. Or maybe it's, a, maybe it's a goal we have for ourselves. Oh, if I could just achieve that goal, that would make me happy. That's my favorite. Or maybe it's another person. It's a relationship. It's my favorite. So it makes me happy. And from God's perspective, the reality is, is he's looking at us, and compared to what he could give us, we're holding on to a $10 foam roller from Amazon. <laughs> but we're, we're organizing our lives around it. We're really, we're worshiping it with who we are because it's our favorite. It means so much to us. We love it. We have no idea that compared to what he could give us, it's a foam roller. He knows he is the only one. The Father is the only one who can give us true happiness, the kind of happiness that's not on the roller coaster of circumstances. The kind of happiness and peace and joy that even when life takes its sudden turns, it's unaffected. He knows that is the only place we can find that, and so he is going to enact his will and bring us to, to, to places where we get to freely choose. Are we going to worship him? Are we going to put him first? Because he knows otherwise we're just revolving ourselves around this $10 foam roller. This Thursday, we're doing this worship night. And one of the reasons that we're doing this is because during the week, it's the same for all of us, same for you, same for me. It's so easy to get distracted start to revolve our lives around other stuff. We come together as a group. We come together in a large setting like this. What we're doing is we're reminding ourselves. We're refocusing. Hey, the, the only thing that we can really orbit around, the only thing big enough, that's God. He's the one that's supposed to be at the center and supposed to be the most important. That's why we do that. 
It's an opportunity to come and to refocus and to reset and to remind ourselves. Same thing with growth groups or Horizon. We might not sing when we go to those groups, but again, we're there and we're discovering what God has to say in his word and we're reminding ourselves, okay, the only foundation that's going to stand the test of time is what God has said and how he wants us to live. That's what I'm going to build my life on. I'm going to put him at the center. Those are all opportunities again, because a lot of this is sometimes say, okay, I'm going to put God first, and then sometimes what we'll do is we'll isolate ourselves from other people, when in reality, as he gave us the church, he gave us a, a, he refers to it as his family, to help us keep each other on track. Sometimes I get off, and I need somebody to help me. Sometimes people close to me get off, I need to help them. And so it's when we come together in these groups and we remind ourselves, hey, he's most important. He's the one that we're supposed to focus on. The Father is watching what we worship. This brings us to the third thing the Father watches. The Father watches our choices. This is really how he enacts his plan in our lives. He's paying attention to our choices. And you see this as you kind of take a step back and and consider how Jesus interacts with this woman in this conversation. It's really interesting how how Jesus does this. Again, by Jesus' own admission, he said, this conversation is an example of the Father's will taking place. Not only what we talk about, but also how I went about it. That's how the Father wanted it to be done. And that's really interesting because the conversation begins with this in Verse 4, it says this. It says, When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? What does he start the conversation with? A question. He actually starts the conversation and gives her the opportunity to say, No, I'm not interested. I don't want to talk to you. He gives her an opportunity to just kill the conversation instantly. And as you go through the conversation, as as you unpack this, what you find is time and again, Jesus gives her an opportunity to say yes or to say no. He gives her a choice. He allows her to decide. And this points to something really significant that God the Father does when it comes to him enacting his will in our lives. See, he he knows that the only thing large enough for us to orbit ourselves around is him, but he's not going to force us to. See, when it comes to the Father enacting with us, the reality is, is God never forces our will. He, he'll bring us to a place where we have to choose, but he's not going to force a specific choice. He's going to bring us to a position where we've got to decide to worship him or worship something else, but he's not going to force that specific choice. You see him do this over and over in the conversation with this woman. Jesus, enacting the will of the Father, does this with this woman. He brings up, hey, can I have a drink? She could have said no. She could have shot it down. He brings up living water. He's referring to salvation. Hey, do you want to talk about this more? Are you curious? Are you interested? She could have easily said no. She could have shot it down. Even after they talk about her husbands, there's other stuff they talk about. Again, the whole time, she has the opportunity and the freedom to say, I'm out. I don't want to talk about this anymore. When she leaves and goes back to the village, she has another choice. Am I going to go and tell people and come back, or am I just going to go and forget about this? Jesus is continuously because of the will of the Father, providing her with choices where she can either say yes to God or she can say no. And then the reality about God, he's not going to force our will, but the Father is going to bring us to places where we've got to choose, and then when we choose, he's going to honor our choice, and then he's just going to, at different circumstance, different time, he's going to bring up another choice. 
again and again. You're going to experience this in your life. Times where, okay, are we going to trust him and put him first, or are we going to hold on to the foam roller? Are we going to put money and a career first, or are we going to invest in the church? Are we going to take all of our free time and invest it in a hobby, or are we going to take our time and we're going to invest it in a relationship? What, what are we going to do? What's most important? And the reason that God gives us the free choice, the reason the Father gives us this free choice again and again, the reason this is how he works his will, is because he knows that's the only way to get to what's really inside of our hearts. He could come and he could say, worship me. Boom, we're all hands and knees on the ground bowing down worshiping. No choice. But he doesn't because we would just be conforming. But he wants a free choice. So he allows us to choose yes or no. And when he does that, what's happening inside of our hearts is there's sorting taking place. What's most important? Is God what's most important? Am I going to trust him or am I going to put my trust in something else? And it comes down to, okay, am I, am I going to have faith in God? Am I going to go with what he says or am I going to hold on to the foam roller? And that's shaping our heart. So he gives us the freedom to choose that. So he's not going to force a specific choice, but I can tell you, because he, he knows that the only way life works is when we revolve around him, he's going to continuously bring us to places where we have to say to him yes or no. Yes, I'm going to worship you. No, I'm going to worship something else. And the interesting thing is, a lot of times in these decisions, we don't see him. You don't get the decision in the mail, and it's got on the letter from God. No, it shows up, and it's just like, hey, you know, it's in the flow of life. It's in everyday situations. God first, something else first. And that's, that's how they present themselves. But he, he gives us the freedom to choose. Now, what's interesting to me about this story is with this woman, again, she, she's had five husbands. She's on her sixth guy. And it's clear from the story that that is what she worshiped. But even though that was her decision-making pattern, the father hadn't stopped giving her the opportunity to choose differently. He didn't, she didn't make a poor choice, and he said, okay, you made a poor choice, I'm out. No, she made a poor choice, and he said, okay, I'm going to cycle back around. I'm going to bring you another opportunity. She made another choice. Okay, I'm going to cycle back around. I'm going to give you another opportunity to make a choice. He kept pursuing because he has a will for her. He loves her. He wants what's best for her. So he doesn't just say, you, know, you, you made a bad choice. I'm out. He says, you know what? Okay, I'm going to keep giving you opportunities to choose freely. Do you want to worship me or do you want to some, worship something else? Are you going to realize that I'm the only one that you can orbit around or are you going to hold on to the foam roller? And he's doing the exact same thing in our lives. The Father has a will for us because he loves us and he wants what's best for us. And he is aware of everything we've ever done, every detail, and it doesn't scare him. He's not running away saying, I, I don't want to be around them. No, he's like, you know what? I'm going to keep pursuing them because I love them and I want what's best for them. And so I know the only way they can be truly happy and satisfied is when they center themselves on me, and so I'm going to continue to provide them with choices and let them decide if they want that or if they want something else. And he's going to continue to do this because he knows 
the only way life works and the only way we can be truly happy is if we center ourselves on him. And before it's too late, he wants us to come to that decision freely. He's not going to force that choice. He's going to allow us to choose, but he will make you choose yes or no. He's just not going to make you choose in one direction or another because he wants it to be free. He wants it to be from your heart. You'll join me. We'll, we'll wrap this up in prayer. Father, we come before you and we thank you that you are a father. Far greater and far beyond many of our fallen and broken and distorted ideas of what it means to be a father. But you are a good and a loving and a perfect father, not one who is aloof, not one who is distant, not one who is disengaged or has abandoned us, but you are one who you're continuously watching and you want what's best. You have a plan for us. You know the way that life is supposed to work and you want to help us choose that. And God, you, are, you did not create robots. You're not going to force us to. You're going to allow us to choose. I thank you that you've given us that choice, Father. And Father, your will is most clearly seen, obviously, in the fact that you sent Jesus, your son, so that we might experience life. And then you sent the Holy Spirit who then lives in us so that we can continue to walk in you. And so I thank you for your will. And I thank you that you're a good and loving father. In Jesus' name, amen.